All right, you can be seated. It's a delight to be able to open the Word of God with you. Uh, our hope is always that these words would be clear and accurate and faithful and also really sharp and helpful to you, that you will not only understand better some of what God has given us, but that it would hit down in here. And as you just heard Pastor Matt read, these are some hard words, so we're going to work through them together, but I think they'll be really helpful to you. Uh, let me start with uh, a story that will introduce this. Maybe eight or nine years ago, when we were first beginning to think biblically about the things that we were doing in the life of our church as a church plant, there was a woman who started hanging out with us uh, here in the life of our church. One of you guys was gospeling her at work, and she was coming to the services and making some friends. She was around. And one day I noticed that when we moved to the time in our liturgy, in our service, where we as Jesus' people come down to Jesus' table and eat Jesus' meal, she came down with us. And she came and she ate and she drank. And then later on, I don't know if it was that day or later in the week, she told me about what a wonderful, mystical, emotional experience it was that she had never done that before. And she was so glad that she had. And I remember just staring at her and smiling and nodding and really having no idea what to say to her. Uh, and then a few weeks later, she disappeared and she was gone. She never came to repentance of sin or confession of faith. She was never baptized into the community of God. She never pressed toward membership, giving herself to live covenantally in the life of our church, any church, none of that. She just came and ate and drank and left. Well, our text today is going to make really painfully clear, and this has been painful to me since that day, that, that we probably sinned against her as a church, or certainly I did as a pastor, in not lovingly talking with her that day when she did that and then said that to me in allowing her to think that the Lord's table is some kind of an individual religious experience, in failing to teach her that this meal is a proclaiming of the brutal price that Jesus paid to ransom her, me and you, from sin, in failing to unpack with her some of these words that say, it is possible for you to come to Jesus' table in a way that you are better off staying away. I never said a word about any of this. I just smiled and nodded. Well, not making that mistake again with her if she comes back, and in love for you, not making that mistake with you, with myself. Um, the texts from Scripture today are going to be help us for, helpful for us here. In Mark 14, we will see the glorious institution of this new covenant meal by Jesus. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, we will see the seriousness of what it is to share in this meal. And my hope is that by the end, we will see that Jesus' table is a proclamation of the gospel made by those who believe the gospel and whose identity is being shaped by the gospel. So let's ask for that grace together. Father, we are your people that right there is astounding to us. You're doing a work in the life of this community as you have done 
since the death and resurrection of Jesus, birthing churches that many might come to know the glory of God in the face of Christ. There's nowhere else we would rather be this morning but sitting under the power and the freedom that is found in the gospel and in your word. So I pray that you do a really beautiful work in us, teach us, convict us, and shape us, heal us. I pray that you do it. Hear my prayer. Amen. Um, Okay, let's start with Mark. We're getting near the end of this gospel. Jesus and his disciples and 800,000 other Middle Easterners are all packed into Jerusalem right now. This is like the Kenmore Square tea station after a Red Sox home game. Have you ever gotten caught down there and you're inching your way toward that platform? This is what Jerusalem is like right here. It's time for the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That has to be participated in within the city limits. And so everybody is in town. Picture if the 4th of July celebration that we do on one day was stretched out for a week and a half. That's what this was. The celebration of the birth of their nation. The independence that God gave them from Pharaoh and Egypt. This was their biggest celebration, 4th of July. God has made us a people. The meal would, the feast would kick off with a meal called the Passover. They would say it like this, we're going to eat the Passover together. Every year, a family or a few families would get together and the father would lead the family through the recounting of the grace of God in setting them free from slavery, redeeming them from Egypt. Everything about this meal was highly symbolic. Of course, was bitter herbs. Why would they eat bitter herbs? To remind themselves of the bitterness of what it was like to be under slavery in Egypt. They would eat unleavened bread. Why unleavened bread crackers? To remind themselves of the speed with which God showed up in power so fast to deliver them that they didn't even have time to bake some muffins and they were hustling out of town free. And of course they ate roasted lamb. Why? To remind themselves of the events of the Passover. Lambs were sacrificed. The blood was drenched on the doorposts of the home. When the judgment of God came on the firstborn of Egypt, they were spared. They received grace from God. And the sign was the sacrificial lamb and its blood that was shed. So they would share this meal together. I need you to feel this. It's a covenantal meal that God's people would share together every year as his people that proclaimed his saving acts for them. And for you to participate in this meal was to say, me too, I'm in, I'm a part of this family and the greater family of God. This God who has done these things, he's my God. I am identifying in this meal with this God. Okay. So it becomes no wonder that Jesus pulls his disciples together on this night, Nisan 14, to institute a new meal, a meal that would ratify a new covenant forged not in the blood of a lamb, but in the blood of Christ himself. It's the perfect time 
with the themes of blood sacrifice and freedom from slavery for Jesus to usher in the new covenant meal. The Passover meal had four parts. They'd begin with a blessing. Then they would pass the wine. Then there would be a recounting of the events of Exodus, Sinai, covenant, freedom, the Red Sea. Then they would drink some more wine. Then it would be time for them to actually eat the meal together. And each of the foods had a specific benediction that was mentioned over the food before you ate. And I need you to see that these words were not up for grabs. You were not allowed to change the language that was used here. Every Jewish dad did the same thing every single year. Everyone in this room would have known exactly what was coming. Ever get caught off guard when something happens that you weren't expecting? Okay, I need you to feel this to understand what it would have been like. Like you go to customer service at the Target in Everett, and what are the words that you hear? Hey, you got a problem? Do you not like something that we sold you? I didn't think so. Walk away. That's basically the next person comes up, hey, you got a problem? Do you not like something that we sold you? I didn't think so. Walk away. I witnessed this happen multiple times in a row as I was standing in line. Now, if you got up to that counter and suddenly they said, how can I serve you today? Do you, you would be like, whoa, what is going on? Customer service in Boston is being nice. I did not expect this. This is a shock. This is what's going on in this room. They are ready for the standard blessing, but Jesus switches things up. Why does he do this? Because Jesus is not having the Passover meal with them. Jesus is trumping the Passover meal. He is exceeding the Passover meal, fulfilling the Passover meal. He is instituting a new covenant meal. And so he brings some new words to bear. Mark says it like this. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, he gave it to them, and then he said, this is my body. And then at the end of the meal, when they were supposed to have the final cup and sing a few psalms, Jesus changes it up. It says that when he had given thanks, he gave the cup to them, they all drank of it, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Okay, there's so much that we could say about this meal. I just want to press home the simplest fact for where we're going together today, and that is this. Jesus is saying, 24 hours before he will be crucified for sin, that his body is going to be broken to redeem his people from sin, and his blood is going to be shed to redeem his people from sin, This meal is like an enacted parable to show this off. The snapping of the unleavened bread. This is my body. The sharp taste of the the red, blood red, warm wine. This is my blood. This meal points to the fact that Jesus needed to be killed, brutally murdered by sinners for sin. This means that whenever we share in this meal together, we are proclaiming very serious realities. Eating this meal is a proclamation that sin is so serious that in order to be set free from it, the bloody death of the Lamb of God, the Son of God, needed to happen to set us free. When you come and eat this 
bread, drink this cup, what you are saying is, yes, I get that. I get the price that was paid. I get the weight of my sin. I get the grace of my God. I see that these things were necessary. Jesus had to walk this road, and I am repenting of my sin and believing on that gospel. And so we would say it like this. Jesus' meal is a proclamation of the gospel made by those who believe the gospel and whose identity is being shaped by that gospel. Okay, fast forward with me now, past the empty tomb into the life of the planting of churches. So Jesus has been broken and beaten and bloodied and crucified and buried and risen. He has sent his apostles out to be witnesses of his gospel. They are planting churches all over the known world. And what do you see everywhere that a church exists? What else exists? This meal exists. The apostles never forgot the Passover that Jesus changed. They never forgot his words in saying, do this in remembrance of me. And so eating this meal became central to the rhythm of the gospel life of Jesus' church. Now, the early, early, early church was so jacked up that they were doing this every day of the week. Did you ever read the beginning of the book of Acts? Daily. They were breaking bread in people's homes. They were just hyped about Jesus being risen from the dead and this new covenant being birthed in his blood. As things settled down and people got into their normal rhythms of life, they began to meet for this meal once a week. On the first day of the week, they would gather to break bread. They would eat a meal, and part of that meal would be the body and the blood of Christ. So we could say it like this. You got Jesus' people on Jesus' day, sharing Jesus' meal. What happened when the Apostle Paul showed up in the city of Corinth and planted a church? What did he teach them to do? Same thing. He said, hey, on Jesus' day, get together as Jesus' people and eat Jesus' meal. We read this before. I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, the body and the blood of Christ broken and shed for you, do this in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death. This is what we've been saying. Eating this meal is proclaiming the death of Jesus Christ for sin. I believe it. My identity is being shaped by it. But then they ran into a big problem in the church in Corinth. Some of the saints in this church began to bring intentional unrepentant sin to this meal. Okay, I need you to feel what was happening. There were no Green Street church buildings in this day. And so when the people were getting together for the feast, for the meal, for worship, for the word, where did they have to do it? They had to do it in someone's home. You got a bunch of people, you need a big home. So naturally, the church in Corinth began to gather and meet in a bigger home, of one of the wealthier, more influential members of the church. And this is what began to happen. You see this in the context of what Matt had read before. In the big room, with the big windows and the air conditioning and the good food, all of the richer Corinthians who were a part of the church would eat. And then out in the atrium, where there was no AC, the room like four rooms over there, cramped in was the poorer Corinthians who weren't in the high social class crowd. 
They were coming together for word and, and sacrament, we would say, for Jesus' people sharing Jesus' meal. And this is how they were eating together. This would be like if we had a meal after church and most of us ate up here, you know? Windows are open, fans are on, Jay Pachi's takeout, chicken parmesan and linguine. But then we just like took the Wakefield crew or the Beverly crew and we sent them down into the utility room with some Burger King. And we did that week after week after week after week. That became intentional practice in the life of our church. That would be messed up right there. There was sin, unrepentant, intentional sin in the life of some of these Corinthians. They were still buying into the social class structures of their day, right? I'm better than you. We need separation. They were failing to be the servant of all, put themselves last, live according to the rhythms of the gospel. They were acting as if this meal was not a communal endeavor, right? Division. You eat over there, we'll eat over here. And some of them are getting drunk. Some of them are finishing off all the bread and wine before others were even showing up, disregarding the gospel completely and yet eating the body and the blood of Jesus. Eating the bread, drinking the cup, but refusing to be shaped by the bread and the cup, proclaiming that Jesus was crucified for sin while living purposefully in sin. Okay, what does Jesus' Apostle Paul, as a loving pastor, do? He goes, time out. These two things do not go together. It's a very terrifying verse of Scripture. Whoever eats of the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Okay, in other words, this meal is a proclamation of the brutal death that Jesus had to die to atone for and forgive sin. To eat this meal is to say, I get that, I believe it, I've received it. How can you simultaneously be saying that and also living in intentional and unrepentant sin? Something is not right here. In fact, it's dangerous for you to do that. You are mocking the elements. You, you are scorning what this means. You are profaning the body and the blood of Jesus. God will not allow that to go on. And so what does Paul tell them to do? Matt cut the last few verses out when he read, so you didn't hear this yet. Here's what he tells them to do. If you are going to continue in this sin, don't eat this meal. He says it like this, stay home. At the end he goes, if anyone's hungry, let them stay at home. In other words, what? If you are, if your heart is so proud and so selfish and so gluttonous and so divisive that you're going to set this routine up where you are getting drunk and eating all the food and separating yourselves from the lesser brothers and sisters, if you're going to abuse the Lord's table by bringing sin to it in that way, don't eat. Stay home. Don't come down to Jesus' body and his blood. If you're going to turn this meal into an opportunity to sin, refrain from the meal. 
Okay, there's a technical theological term for this idea. It's called fencing the table. When a loving pastor and a loving church tells somebody, hey, you, you should not be eating Jesus' meal the way that you're living right now. Okay, I've never loved that phrase for two reasons. First of all, my mind just races to the fencing in the Olympics, that fencing, and I just keep picturing a seven-mile road pastor in like a white spandex outfit with that crazy mesh mask on, just kind of standing down here on a Sunday with the little sword by his hip. God, don't touch that cracker. For some reason, that races to my mind. Strike that. There was no fencing in the Middle East in, in, in the year 32. But nor does it mean the kind of fencing that is holding you out from something good. So, you know like on a 99 degree summer day, oh, you're just sweating. You peer over the fence into a neighbor's yard and they've got this amazing in-ground pool back there. I mean, we don't live next to anyone, but just imagine this with me. It's just like fresh, clean water, sparkling. No one's in there at all. And all you can do is peer over that fence. Have those neighbors put that fence up in love for you right there? No. That fence is up to keep you out of something delightful and refreshing and good. That is not what Paul is doing here. That is not what we mean if we say fencing the table of Christ. It is not holding you back from some delight. It is holding you back from spiritual danger. Eleven years ago when Grace and I were moving from Revere to either Malden or Melrose or Medford, right? It was going to be one of those three because we were planting the church in Malden. We ended up at this white house on that hill that Kitty Corners, Malden, and Melrose over that way. And it's on this hill that's like, I don't know what the incline is that a human hill could be, but they matched it and then stopped. And I just, Grace was walking around the house, it was July, and I just remember sitting in my car like, you have to be kidding me. This woman is not going to like this house. Well, she loved it. And so we've ended up buying that house and living there, and we'll die there. But it's on a really steep hill. And one of the very first things that we did, because Matthew was one year old, was we bought the two cheapest fences you can possibly buy at Home Depot. You know those fences? And we put them up on the front ends of the house so that if Matthew was chasing a ball, he would not tumble down the hill of death. When we put those fences up, those fences were put up in love. Those fences were put up to keep our son from a danger that would harm him. This is what scripture means when it talks about this idea of, hey, maybe the table is not for you right now. Let me put a fence up here. It's for your good. How does Paul say it? He says this is so serious that I'll say it like this. Let a person examine himself. Then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Okay, we've got to be careful with this verse because we tend to swing to these two giant opposite poles on this issue, and I don't want us to do that on the extremes. Sometimes we get a hold of the wrong end of this verse and this truth, and we start thinking or teaching that unless you have lived perfectly for the last seven days of your life, like without sin, I'm talking Jesus-like, you should not be coming down to Jesus' table. Have you ever heard that preached before or felt that way when you read this verse? It comes time for the meal, and you're supposed to rack your mind and just 
if there's any sin that we committed or any sin that we contribute to struggle with, or if we're parents of children in any way, shape, or form, because that means you've sinned about 16 times on Sunday morning, or anything like that is going on, that you're not holy enough to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so instead of this meal being the raucous, joyous feast that we run to, it becomes a very somber, even frightening or scary reality for us. That is not what Scripture is saying to us in this text. To say that would be to miss the whole point of the gospel, right? Mark does this literarily with us. He gives us Judas betraying Jesus. He gives us Peter denying Jesus and the apostles abandoning Jesus, and what's in the middle of all of this ridiculous behavior and sin? It's this meal, right? What's Mark saying to us? This meal is not for the worthy. This meal is for the unworthy. This meal is not that you get holy enough and then you get access. This meal is that Jesus makes you holy and continues to make you holy and gives you access. And so this verse is not saying that this meal is only for those who are perfect, but it is saying that it's only for those who are repentant. Not that you have achieved perfection or almost did this week, except for that one thing, that you are a sinner who needs grace and has responded to the grace of God with repentance. So here's a few things that we would be looking for that would help us to feel like we have a clear conscience in the life of our church as you are coming down and feasting every week with us on the body and the blood of Christ. I wish I had unpacked these things eight years ago with this woman. I get to do it with you. So the first one and really the biggest E on the eye chart, okay? This is the E. Here it is. This is the big one. We need you to be living a life of repentance from sin. There's a difference between indwelling sin that you are fighting off an intentional sin that you don't care and you're hanging on to. If that second kind of thing is going on in your life, then there's a fence up around this table for, for you. As your pastors, we will counsel you as much. In your gospel communities, others will counsel you as much. These are some of the hardest conversations that we will have to say, look, you see this right here? This is sin, and you know it, and it's intentional and purposeful, and you don't care, and we want to work with you, but until you come to repentance for this, do not come bring that down to the table over and over and over and over again. This is proclaiming that Jesus had to die to forgive sin, be repentant of sin in order to participate in this grace. We love you too much to let you keep this contrast going on a weekly basis. That's the big E on the eye chart when you check your heart. We also need you to be baptized if you're going to be regularly participating in this meal with us. Jesus' first and simplest command to us is, after repentance and faith, be baptized. Basic obedience to Jesus begins with the sacrament of baptism. Think of someone who is refusing to be baptized. Okay, it's okay, but what are they saying? They are saying, I'm not in on this stuff. I don't desperately need the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus to atone for my sin. I'm not really sorry for my sin that sent Jesus to the cross. I am not interested in my identity being buried and my new identity being all wrapped up 
in Jesus. I don't want baptism. Again, that's okay, but please don't have that posture in your heart. Religiously check in here and come down to the, to the table of, Je- of Jesus. This meal is a proclamation that he had to die for sinners. It's dangerous for you to take the bread and the cup into you if you are not sorrowful for that sin. And so this has been the natural practice of the church, you know, throughout the New Testament era. Baptism is the sacrament of entrance into the covenant community. I am in the family of God. I got the sign on me. I got wet. The Lord's table is the continuing ordinance, sacrament, participation in the grace of that community. So we say it like this. If you have not run gladly into the waters of baptism, please don't run down here to Jesus' table. These two things are bound together. And then also, we need you pressing toward membership, identifying with the community of God that's gathered in the life of our church. This is totally foreign to the whole American mindset, but I'll give it to you anyway because it's biblical and covenantal. This meal is a communal event. This is not a TV dinner. Are there TV dinners anymore? This is not DiGiorno pizza that just you throw in when you're ready to eat it. This is not takeout at Sonic that you eat in your car by yourself at your convenience. That's not what this is, a personal religious experience. It's a community meal that we share together. Earlier in Corinthians, Paul says it like this, the cup of blessing that we bless. Isn't this the blood of the Messiah? The bread which we break Isn't this the body of the Messiah? Because there's one bread, the many are one body, for we will partake of one bread. Do you feel all the we stuff in there? How many breads? How many gospels? How many cups? You know what I mean. One cup. How many people come down to the table? Lots of people. But are they individuals or are they we? See, it's we. It's not body part by body part, I partake in the body of Christ. It's we, as a covenant community, come together. It's a family meal. It's a communal act. I'm up to page 803 in Michael Horton's Systematic Theology, and he's got this amazing sentence. He says, as a covenantal meal, the Lord's Supper binds us vertically to the crucified, risen, and ascended Christ and horizontally to our brothers and sisters. It is not a private spiritual experience. That's it. We're called by God to find ways to live covenantally with each other under the care of our shepherds that Jesus gives to us. We want your heart saying yes to Jesus' gospel and yes to Jesus' people and yes to Jesus' table. So to regularly eat at this table with us We press you hard toward membership with us or with someone else so that there is relationship and accountability and a togetherness for you to come and share this meal. It changed my life when I became a member of Seven Mile Road Church and I invited you guys into my life to love me and to say, if you see me stepping into any stupid, ridiculous sinfulness that would cause me to profane the gospel and the body and the blood of Christ, I am in community with you, and you are allowed to talk with me, love me, correct me. And my pastors are allowed to tell me, don't come down to this meal 
if you're going to continue to live in this way. That is grace from God to us, and it makes it safe for us to come to the table of Jesus. Now remember, in all of this talk, our aim is not to keep people away from the table of Jesus, but to find a good and holy way for them to be welcomed to it. We want every soul in greater Boston to come down to the table of Jesus with us. Oh, that would be fabulous. See, some churches get a hold of this text and they preach this sermon and they really like the fence thing. Oh, this is nice. I got a way to keep people out from our pristine small community. And it's gonna be us 24 at Jesus' table and no more. And the number of elect in Boston has to be like under 250. So this is a great text for me to keep people out. That is not the spirit of the text. That is not the spirit of our heart. This fencing thing that we're talking about, you know that it's not around the life of the church, right? You know that it's not around the time of the word and worship. You know that there's no fences around gospel community. You know that you don't have to be anything to be in relationship with us and us to be in relationship with you. There's no fences there. It's just around this meal because we love you and we first want you to say yes to the gospel and to your identity being in Jesus, and then yes to his table and the ongoing sacrament. So we long for all of you, all of you, to find life and hope and peace and grace and forgiveness and freedom in the gospel of Jesus Christ and eat in our church or some church every week of your lives, fed and fed and fed and fed and fed. So let me just end with you with what the Apostle Paul said. It's be a great exercise. Examine yourself. Again, not did you sin this week? Are you a knucklehead who's still coming along and still sorrowful for your sin and still figuring it out? If that's you, that's me. So come and eat. But ask these kind of questions. Do I believe the gospel? Start with that one. We need that answer to be yes, I do. Am I allowing my identity to be shaped by the gospel? Yes. Then have I been baptized in obedience to Christ? Am I really serious about living in community with the people of God? And then the big one, am I living in any clear, intentional, unrepentant sin? If you are, deal with that before coming to the body and the blood of Christ. In Corinth, I'm hoping that these people got this letter by Paul and they repented of their sin and they changed the whole deal on a Sunday. And they said, we're done eating in different rooms. We're eating outside or on the roof or we're renting a hall somewhere so we can all be in the same room. Jesus, forgive us for what we were doing. We are done giving the good food to the rich folks and the junk food to the poor folks. Done. Everybody's eating at the same buffet. Jesus, forgive us for the way we were treating each other. We are done with the folks getting there early, getting junk and eating as much as they could because they were hungry. Jesus, forgive us for our gluttony and our pride and our selfishness. And I hope that they stepped into a new way of living together. And when Paul arrived in Corinth, he just went, I love it. I love that you have examined yourself, repented of your sin, and that you are now not staying home, but coming together to eat of the feast.
It's the same thing with you. Okay? We all got all kinds of seasons in our life when we step into ridiculous sin. If it's there, let's deal with that with you. And let's be aggressive about dealing with that with you, right? I mean like if you're living with your girlfriend and sinning against her body, it's finished. You come live in my basement because the body and the blood of Christ was brutally broken to forgive you of your sin. And that intentional sinfulness has to stop for you to find life in his name. We could run through any other intentional sin that is just set up in your life and say, that one's got to go. Let's get that one to go and come to the body and the blood of Christ. So take a look at your heart, structurally, right? Big, big picture, heart, and who you are. Believe the gospel. Be identified with the gospel. Obey Jesus' commands about baptism and community. Come down here week after week after week, body and blood of Christ. I love you. These are words that I should have and would have said much quicker to the woman who just didn't understand and was misled about this. I want what's best for you and for us, and I want you holy. I want you living with the graces that God has given to you so that I know that he's yours and you're his and we're clean before him. So let's ask him for that grace together. Father, we are imperfect and unworthy and sinful. But the good news of the gospel, that's exactly who you sent your son to save. Wow. We marvel that in your grace you you took bread and you made it something else. And you took a cup and you made it something deep. And that these simple elements form a simple meal that we share as one body. And we are proclaiming, yes, Christ has died for me. Christ has risen for me, for us. We have been given eternal life and abundant life. And we get to taste it this morning. I pray that every soul in here would come to a fierce holiness, that we would all find community to be deep and real in our lives, that the center of our identity would not be our sinful, gluttonous, selfish, proud selves, but the Holy Son of God. Come and do that work in us. I pray for your glory and, of course, for our great joy. Hear my prayer and answer. Amen.